I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Economists like to think that there's an equilibrium that the economy is either briefly moving away from or it's heading back to. And it's all explained in those simple models we did at school, uh, mostly microeconomic models that could magically be interpreted at the macro level, or in more complex mathematical models that only reflect a tiny slice of the bigger picture. But didn't Sonnenschein mantle de Brewer theorem debunk all that? What? I hear you say we're going to talk about that today. Even then, didn't they miss a trick when it came to understanding feedback loops? Yep, it's going to get messy today. How feedback loops kill the equilibrium fantasy. It's the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. All right, well, let's start with a very simple level of preschool economics before things get potentially quite complicated. Actually, hugely complicated, I suspect, this morning. So, I'm, But we're going to stay with it. So in the very simple world where life would be a lot easier if it existed, the prices for things would iron themselves out based on supply. Are you with me, children? Uh, if, we, if too much is produced, there's a glut, the price goes down. If there's not enough, then prices go up until we arrive at this magical equilibrium where there's just the right amount for the price people are prepared to pay. That's a great theory, isn't it? And it would work, I suspect, if there was just one product th- that we all bought. And that was it. But there's not, of course. There's there's lots of prices and how much and lots of products and how much we're prepared to pay. Shifts based on a whole load of factors, including how much money we have, the comparative value of one thing over another, marketing and the value of brand, how well off we feel, how much money we've got after we've paid our energy bill, which in the UK is going to be horrendous, by the way. So if there is such a thing as equilibrium, it's going to be a lot more complicated than that simple explanation of just one product meeting demand. So today... We're going to make it much more complicated and look at, even the name is complicated. We're going to look at the Schonenschein Mantel de Brewer theorem, which tests the theory of equilibrium. Mario, oh, yeah. we, Steve, we've got a listener who wrote to us called Mario and said, I know in principle what it's about, but the, the, the story around it seems to be interesting as well. I thought the Wikipedia page, including the discussion, is very interesting in that it tries to avoid discussing the consequences. So I don't know if there's enough for one episode, but I'm certainly very interested to learn more about it. So, uh, look, I mean, there's certainly plenty for one episode. We've, we've, just, we've spent 40 minutes on less, haven't we? Uh, but, um, but, I mean, that idea of equilibrium that I described is, is sort of like the layman's idea, isn't it? It's all just supply and demand. Uh, so how does that relate to the Schonenschein mantel de Brewer theory? You've got 20 minutes to explain it. <laughs> oh, okay, so 20 minutes, let's see how I go. Well, the starting point of this is is the, the way that neoclassical economics evolved was, was a response to Marx turning the classical theory of economics from a supporter of capitalism against feudalism to a, a, an opponent of capitalism in favour of socialism back when, after Marx wrote, uh, published Das Kapital in 1867. And, and, and almost at the same time, in the 1870s, you had uh, what was in an underground theory, which, which was 
based on the idea of utility maximising behaviour, suddenly became, and I really should study how this actually happened, suddenly became dominant in the academia throughout Europe. So you had for, like from the time of Smith in 1776, right through for virtually a century, uh, the classical school dominated and the classical school um, it, it value was objective, Value was, uh, was, uh, was, you know, everything was about the amount of labor going into things. Uh, the short term fluctuations in prices, generally speaking, were ignored. Um, and Ricardo ex- explains at length why, you know, we don't worry about the ups and downs because the overall equilibrium, and they also had a concept of equilibrium, was set by the cost of production. That was the, the focus. Uh, whereas the neoclassical vision, and this actually dates from similar sort of time, you had Corno writing, uh, very much a neoclassical analysis of uh, monopolies back in the early 1800s. Um, and then there was Jean say who was a rival of uh, of Ric- rival and friend of Ricardo's and uh, was also had to push this utility-based theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was underground stuff in 1870, bang, it becomes a front and centre. And uh, the main person who f- formalised the theory mathematically was actually Paul Samuelson. And he wrote uh, his... Uh, his PhD thesis called Foundations of Economic Analysis. I think he wrote that and published it in 1948. And, and that developed the idea of what he called indifference curves. And this is, this is here we're going, we're going to get really messy and complicated straight away because the, the previous exponents of the neoclassical school basically uh, talked about sub- this, the scissors of supply and demand, even Marshall's phrase that uh, uh, supply and demand set price and quantity. And it's he, he, said, he used to say uh, to try to um, argue them separately is like trying to cut a piece of paper with one one half of the scissor. So you've got to have them both together and they, 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 they the supply and demand explain price and quantity. And that's what's taught with the intersecting lines that, uh, mm. that students study in, in first year economics. Now, to formalise that, uh, Samuelson said, well, how do we actually derive the idea that demand is a downward sloping function of price? So the, 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 the lower the price, the higher the demand. There's a negative relationship between price and quantity on the demand curve. And then on the other side, well, we should talk about this as well, actually, as a follow-up in a couple of weeks' time, the supply curve went the opposite way. So the higher the quantity, the higher the price. Yeah. And therefore, you've got one downward sloping function, one upward sloping function. Where they intersect is where equilibrium applies. And what Samuelson did in, in his uh, work leading up to foundations of economic analysis, he developed an explanation for the downward sloping price a demand curve, pardon me, using what he called indifference curves. And um, have I lost you yet or should I keep trying? No, I've got a a point to try and simplify it all, but I wanted to interject at the right time. But now you've stopped yourself. Just this idea idea of utility being sort of set appeals to me as a marketer because that's what marketers spend their life trying to do. We try and add value to a product, which is irrelevant. You know, the, the cost, obviously, we've got to try and make a profit out of it. But the cost, in a way, is irrelevant because what we are all about is the utility. How do we make something which perhaps costs a lot less have a greater perceived value? And that is all about trying to increase the utility, increase the worth for the for the person who's using it. And you do want that to be stable over time. And generally, products are. I mean, we're talking microeconomic levels, obviously. But those prices don't move around. And if they do move around, they move around because inflation's push prices up generally. And, uh, you know, but proportional to share of wallet, which is another big marketing term, isn't it? You know, we, you're aiming to try and maximize that or at least hold on to it. So that's all about equilibrium, you know, holding your your position. 
Well, yeah, but no, that's actually about disequilibrium because, and that's actually much more Schumpeterian in thinking than it is neoclassical. Mm. Because what you're trying to say is, you know, here's here's my product. Let's call it. Uh, op- it wasn't it wasn't Optus you work with. Was, was it Optus you work with back no, in Australia? Oz- Aussie Mail. Aussie well, Mail. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, on- yeah, and and okay. t- Telstra. The, in fact, Optus is yeah. the only company that turned you know turned me down. Yeah, yeah. you could have had me. Yeah. Yeah. Not anymore. Okay. Um, so you're trying to add something of, of extra appeal to the Oz email versus the Telstra mm. email service. Yeah, that's yep. and that's what's that's what you're talking about. Well, that's actually saying that uh, we want to disturb the equilibrium. Yeah? We want to bring in something which changes people's tastes, and we want to do it um, by targeting effectively early adopters because the first people who are going to be willing to do that are the ones who are willing to experiment. So you do have you know, you, the idea of utility does play a role. Uh, in the real world. But the way it's treated in economics is, is a complete abstraction from the real world, which ignores all those dynamic changing elements that should be the basis of talking about microeconomics. Mm. So if we just go, go through how Samuelson did it. He first of all presumed you, you basically had a set of preferences which were immaculately conceived. You guys in marketing have no role at all. I'm sorry, you know, you know, you're <laughs> irrelevant. So we'll leave you out of the equation. Mm. So we all we're all born with a utility curve linking our demand for uh, bananas to our demand for Rolls Royces. And these are a given. And what you know, what, what uh, Samuelson did is to say, well, people are searching for the maximum personal level of utility, and this is very important. It's it's something which is unique to the individual, and you and the whole idea of neoclassical theory is you cannot compare the utility you get out of an apple to the utility I get out of an apple. Okay, yeah. there's no way to do that numerical comparison between individuals, but each individual has a set of tastes for apples versus pears versus cigars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. Now, what you do in, in neoclassical theory to derive a downward sloping demand curve, and students used to do this in first year. I actually did it at high school back in the 60s. Um, it's, it's been shoved off to so-called high levels of analysis now, and you often don't cop it until third year in a lot of universities. But it's the idea of how do you derive a downward sloping demand curve for a single consumer. And, and if you do go through it, you go through it in exhausting details. So first of all, they, they draw the number of, I used to like using ridiculous stuff. So bananas on the vertical axis and coconuts on the horizontal. Okay? And you, you'll have a particular combination of, of um, lots of bananas and very few coconuts. Uh, and then another one with, with very few bananas and lots of coconuts. And the, your tastes are such that you, if you were presented with a choice between the two, you couldn't say which one you preferred. You are indifferent between those two. Mm. And then you, know, you draw a curve, which uh, is it has to have a negative slope. It has to slope downwards and, and curve outwards as well. Um, and that shows all the points of combinations of bananas and coconuts that give you precisely the same level of utility or satisfaction. And then if you then have a, 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 a high, if you look at a, a higher uh, combination, that'll be in a different indifference curve. So you, you have a, a surface which if you, if you draw a graph of it, you start from the, the bottom left-hand corner and you go outwards. And what you're doing effectively is climbing up a utility hill. Uh, but what, what Samuelson does is let's slice the hill and show all the points of equal height. So the easy analogy I can give you people is you look at weather maps all the time when you're looking at the TV news and you'll see all these curves, so you know, closed loops, joined 
defining points of equal pressure. And we're used to reading those. And, you know, we're high pressure, low pressure, et cetera, et cetera. The it's the same basic thing, high, yeah. high utility, low utility. Yeah. So that's the starting point. You've got these curves and, and they've got a particular slope. They always slope downwards. So if you if you sacrifice one unit of, of bananas, uh, it takes, uh, you know, more a, a non-negative number of coconuts to give you to compensate for the losses in utility from bananas that you're now gaining from coconuts. So it's got this negative slope. So that's the starting point. And then they say, well, let's, let's work out the consumer's demand for coconuts. And uh, what you'll have is on the vertical axis. Now you have the number of bananas and you say, well, let's, let's take the consumer's income as given. So the consumer's got a certain income. If the consumer spent all that income buying bananas, they could buy 137 bananas, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't change that point when you change the price for coconut. So you say, well, let's say one banana uh, is cost the same as one coconut. Then the, your, you would draw what they call a budget line, and that goes from 137 bananas on the vertical axis to 137 coconuts on the horizontal axis straight line and that shows you all the combinations you can afford and the one you will actually buy is where the um, the, the highest um, indifference curve touched by that budget line so that's that's the, the, the but isn't that, so isn't that, visually. yeah isn't that the opposite of a utility value though because I, I could say well i'm getting more utility out of a out of a banana than a coconut therefore i'm you know that it's it's not a one-for-one transfer it's um, oh, and it's, it's, it's it's not one for one it could be two for one 37 to 12 you know it doesn't right. matter it's just using that's the easiest one to start with right. and then you say well if, if the price of a banana is one coconut uh, then this is the combination of bananas and coconuts where you consume. And if, like, I'm, I'm, you might be a banana junkie and I'm a coconut junkie. So if you draw your curves on that surface, you'd be up at the point where you take, you know, lot, lots of bananas and very few coconuts, and that would maximise your utility. I'm way down the other end. I want lots of coconuts and very few bananas. I'm actually thinking of a terrible old night. Is it 1950s? I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. That's... I follow. <laughs> and we don't need the photograph. But no, 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 you, you don't want to see your lovely image, You've got the image, but you've got the image. <laughs> anyway, so that's so that 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 idea then says for each of us, we can derive an individual demand curve. Right. So your demand curve would have lots of bananas, you know, you high preference bananas, low for coconuts, mine would be otherwise. And our demand curves would have different slopes. Okay. Yeah. At the individual level. So that's that's the and that's what the framework the students get taught. And then they say, and then there's the market demand curve, which is simply add up horizontally all the demand. So, you know, Phil's got a high demand for bananas, Steve's got a low demand. We work out what the what the demand is at the particular price, and we, we, we lower the price of, of, of coconuts so you can buy more. So even Phil buys some more coconuts, Steve buys a lot more, et cetera, et cetera. Add horizontally and you get the market demand curve. No, that, but how do you do that? How do you aggregate that up without knowing what everyone's doing? That's the problem. That's that's the problem because what you'll do is you wave your hand and then magically market demand curve and let's talk about market demand now that's what happens in first year courses now so i say oh you a lot of detail and then we just go over this step uh right that's all done hang on can we just go over that one step again exactly no, no, no. So, so the, oh is that the bell gone there we are end of the lesson exactly oh mm. dear <laughs> all right well that's crazy again. stuff isn't it that's well, crazy stuff. But that, that's what they do they just wash over it now there are I mean, People who work in neoclassical economics, in general, A, don't know that they're doing neoclassical. They're just doing economics as far as they're concerned. And B, there are a lot of genuine, decent people in there. I'm not going to put them down at all. Uh, and it's highly mathematical, and it appeals to mathematically oriented, well, I call it mythematical, but you know, it appeals to people who enjoy mathematical argument. 
And in the 60s and 70s, a group of economists, uh, Schaefer, Sonnenschein and Mantell, independently rediscovered something that was discovered back in the 50s by Gorman and Samuelson. And uh, they did a much more careful job than Gorman and Samuelson. I'll come back to Gorman and Samuelson in a second. And they uh, said, well, you can't just do the horizontal addition because a central part of neoclassical theory is prices determine incomes. Mm-hmm. As a worker, your income depends on how many hours you work and the wage you get paid. Okay? Um, if you, as, a, as a banana producer, how many bananas you sell and the price of bananas, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So your personal income now depends upon the prices. And when they do the individual stuff, which is all they cover in, in standard first-year classes, um, then they simply say, well, there's a fixed point up here where we change your income is fixed. Uh, we change the relative price of coconuts to bananas. Uh, as the drop price of coconuts right. drops, you will buy more coconuts. So there's no. So what you're blah, saying blah, is there's blah. no feedback. So there's nothing there to say. There's no okay, feedback. Yeah. Yeah. If you are a, if you, everyone buys bananas and banana producers get paid more than coconut producers, then the average income is going to go up. Therefore, there's uh, more money to be spent, possibly on coconuts. Yeah. Well, it's it's the feedback for income that matters because. Yeah. If you're doing it for individual, it's fair enough to say we can assume that if we change the price of coconuts relative to bananas, we're not going to have much impact upon an isolated individual's tastes. Right. But this is the crucial point that I think most uh, certainly mainstream economists haven't got, the, never don't want to get their heads around this, and the students often don't understand it either. If you are going to construct a market demand curve, you must include the demand of every last person in that economy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So when you when you do an individual, you're just ignoring the rest and say, well, we can change prices and not change your income. When you want to add up everybody's demand properly in the economy and you take as, as, a, as an absolute principle of neoclassical theory that prices determine incomes, okay, um, then when you change prices, you change the distribution of income. Yeah. Okay. okay. Now, if you're going to include, if you're looking at the demand, demand for coconuts, Relative to the demand, you know, relative in terms of the price of coconuts in terms of bananas, and you make coconuts cheaper, you necessarily reduce the income of coconut consumers. Yep, okay? and they are part of the market of, of, of coconut producers. You mean? You, yeah, well, coconut, yeah. You, you, you know, the coconuts and bananas all be made in the same economy. Let's forget yep. about uh, who cares about geography anyway. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, that's an in joke here, in case people don't pick it up. Um, but so when you're going to try to drive a market demand curve for a single commodity, your demand must be derived from the entire economy, which includes the people who produce the good you're, whose price you're looking at. Yeah. Now, what you can do is a positive feedback. So if it happens that uh, coconut producers love coconut and everybody who runs off the industry also loves coconuts, you know, the more coconut, the higher income of coconuts, the more pina coladas blah, 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 uh, 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 purchased by rich coconut producers, you change the income of part of your consumption group. And therefore, you can actually, by making coconuts cheaper, you can reduce the demand for coconuts. You hit the income. And this this is the dilemma that they had, that the... the uh, and, and it turned up initially when you when you look at the work of Gorman, who was the first person to discover it, and um, and Samuelson, you get probably the clearest statement of what the fuck is wrong. Mm. So you've got lots if of I, coconuts. You've got a you've got an even bigger bunch mm. of coconuts. You've got a very big bag. I mean, it's unimaginable how big your coconuts are and uh, the, the bag of yeah. them. And and so because you've got so many, the price is going down. And the fact that the price is going down because you've got so many of them means that the 
Uh, you get poorer. The, you, you get poorer as a result of it. Therefore, and you can't buy as many coconuts. Yeah. So the demand for the, the price of coconuts falls. Your demand for coconuts falls, and that can overwhelm the increase in demand for those who uh, don't have as many coconuts, and therefore don't lose as much by the price change. No. So, uh, so the, the, the mathematical dilemma that the sun and shine man. So it's sort of like coconut-driven uh, deflation you're getting happening there. Yeah, yeah. Coconuts are deflating. That's an interesting thought as well. <laughs> uh, actually, bananas are looking in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> I was staying away from oh that. God. I was steering away from the bananas. I, I know you were. Particularly when we talk right about utility here. value, I was going, well, it depends what you guys thinking. It depends what you want to do with it, doesn't uh, it? Okay, okay. But everyone- <laughs> Listen, drop the banana for a second. Let me talk here. Okay. So um, when you when you go, I really like starting with, with Gorman because uh, his paper, which is called Community Preference Fields, from 1953, the year of my birth, uh, he was the first person to analyse this. And what they were talking in terms of really relates to international trade theory, because international trade theory would, would describe uh, an entire society using an indifference curve. And so we can we can talk about trade between America and let's say you know the random country shows and say Russia uh, by looking at their indifference curves and what's called an Edgeworth box diagram. Blah, blah. But so they were working at the level of international trade, trying to work this out, and then they realised well. If we're going to draw a indifference curves for an entire community, we have to somehow be able to aggregate everybody's tastes so that we get a continuous curve, which uh, is, first of all, is both smooth, but also does not intersect any other curve. Um, I think I'm explaining that one badly, but the idea is if you want to treat the entire society using exactly the same sort of analysis used for an individual then you must be able to go from the individual with a set of indifference curves which in which we can, um, you know, um, say don't intersect each other necessarily to the, add up the whole of society and the curves still don't intersect. And I gave the example earlier of you liking bananas more and I mean liking coconuts more. Uh, if you drew our indifference curves on the one diagram, you get lots of points of intersection. Mm. Okay. Now, you don't want to have that happen. You want to rule that out. Now, here is Gorman and it, uh, and, and this is from the first page of the paper. We will show that there is just one community indifference locus, locus through each point if and only if the angle curves for different individuals at the same prices are parallel straight lines. What the F does that mean? Angles uh, curves uh, then say, well, uh, back to the individual again, you've got your uh, when you work out the price that you're willing to pay for coconuts versus bananas, you keep the uh, the intersection for the bananas constant, which assumes your prices of bananas are not changing, and the uh, your income is not changing, and then you vary the the uh, point of intersection on the coconut axis. But when you work at an angle curve, you say, well, "What if your income doubles? What will happen to your consumption?" So you, you move the curve out parallel. You and you what you're in, what you're doing in that case is not looking at changes in price, but changes in income. Now, if you imagine, uh, 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 if you regarded uh, coconuts as uh, a, a necessity, you had to have some coconuts, but not at all a, a luxury, your luxury is bananas, then as you move your angles curve out, it will curve and have you consuming ultimately a constant, actually curve vertically for you. If I put bananas on the vertical axis and coconuts on the horizontal, and then I pushed your income out, at a certain point, you get all the coconuts you ever want to consume, and basically all the extra income is going to go on the bananas, and your curve goes up because few bananas are a luxury item and coconuts are a necessity. For me, it goes the other way. What he's saying here, and I'm sorry, those curves can't slope differently. They must be straight lines, and your straight line must be parallel to my straight line. In other words, the only way we can derive a market demand curve 
which is downward sloping in coconuts, if you and I have identical tastes and we regard coconuts and bananas as identical things. Yeah. At this point, you're saying, hang on a second, <laughs> we have a problem here. Yeah, there's now, big, some big assumptions going on here. Yeah. Well, not just a big assumption, it's, it's, it's a case of we can't do this. The idea that we can derive a market demand curve that behaves exactly the same as an individual's demand curve is a fallacy. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and that's, but until you, uh, until you aggregate it all up. Easily done, Steve. What's your problem with all of this? So the, well, uh, <laughs> Here it come. Here, this, this, I can quote Gorman on this one. The necessary and sufficient condition quoted above is intuitively reasonable. It says, in effect, that an extra unit of purchasing power should be spent in the same way, no matter to whom it is given. So is the is, is the an, so, is, so, is, hang on hang on is that intuitive and of, of reasonable to you? No, pig's but, ass. It's total bullshit. In other words, what you've got here is somebody confronting a fundamental flaw in their own logic, and, and the, the response to it is to is to ignore the flaw and say, "I'm willing to assume that people are identical, not just people identical, products are identical." Yeah, and, and therefore, there's no such thing as a price. But doesn't all of this, uh, you know, without getting – because this is – I mean, there's a lot of detail beyond all of this as well, obviously, and a lot of detail mm. over what we discussed today. But, I mean, just at the highest level, doesn't it point to, you know, which I know is it's very much your bag, that, uh, you know, the, the equilibrium doesn't exist because there are just too many feedback loops and too much complexity in, in markets for you to – uh, to, to really ever attain, no, and, and, there's too many moving parts, and this is what this is what should have been re- the, the result of this of this theorem should have been. Oh dear, we cannot ignore the distribution of income hmm. when we're trying to work out demand. Okay, now whereas the neoclassicals, when you when you talk about demand, uh, they are they simply say, well, uh, you know, we're, uh, when price falls, demand rises because people are utility maximising. Hmm. When you look at it, no, the only way you can explain it is because the price gets too expensive and the poor can't buy it. And so we come back into the days where you have to talk in terms of, in terms of class. And one one person in formal economics who actually got this right is a guy called Alan Kerman. And, uh, and Alan and I have since become good friends. Um, but he... And when he looked at the Sonnenschein Mandrelberg stuff himself, his his conclusion was that we we have to work at a high level of aggregation. In other words, we can't work at the at the isolated isolated consumer. Uh, let's see. Uh, it is uh, if we are to progress further, we made this is Alan Kerman uh, in a paper called "Limits of Modern Economic Theory." The emperor, the emperor has no clothes. If we are to progress further, we may well be forced to theorize in terms of groups which have collectively coherent behavior. Now, that means that it's ridiculous to try to aggregate everybody mm. and therefore say the whole, because the conditions on which you can aggregate everybody is not just that everybody has the same tastes, those tastes don't change with income. And that's nonsense. Because that, 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 that particular conclusion, which is a necessary part of the Sonnenschein-Mandrelberg theorem, is, destroys the whole idea that relative prices matter. Because you're saying, well, change prices doesn't matter. You'll still consume the same things in the same ratio. But so it, it is a fundamental flaw of neoclassical economic theory, and they, they obfuscate and, and, and waffle around it and don't come to terms with it. And therefore, the whole foundation, this is, this is the rotten foundations of neoclassical economics. So do they need to model the way uh, marketers model then? So I, you know, going back to my marketing days, hmm would segment the market so i'd go well yeah. okay who's going to buy where who has the greatest propensity to buy at what price level are they going to buy 
and uh, and how are we going to define that segment? And very often it's, you know, income is part of it and geography is part mm-hmm. of it and taste is, you know, a part of it as well. It's not all sort of a hard, a hard facts, but you generally have to define, you know, at some point define them in a way where you can uh, actually identify who these people are, how many of them exist. And then you look at, you know, what is going to push their buttons and make them buy. But as, as well as sort of like that motivational stuff, you are looking at the, uh, you know, how well off they are, where they live, uh, what their, um, what their age is, what their ethnic background is, all, all of those factors, which are, you are able to, uh, you know, put a, put a number behind. You know how many of them are in the country and you actually yeah. know where they live. So and that's why, and that, that's an important, and I hate to say that, you know, important role of marketing, mm. um, which, which, which is, is, should be part of what we taught. We teach students consumer theory or, or microeconomics. It should be about those marketing concepts and how they work. And that's where system dynamics uh, really plays a major role. The, the stuff that uh, the Forrester first did was, well, part of the first one was on the internal dynamics of a, of a factory, but the second one was on how do you make people adopt uh, new products and so on. Uh, but that's that's where we should have gone. Now, just just to show how ideological neoclassical economics is, you have to. See, you, I've just got to get this into the record here. You have to see just how much believers in neoclassical economics were willing to distort their own theory to hang on to their beliefs. So this Samuelson in 1956 wrote a paper called Social Indifference Curves, same sort of topic as Gorman, and he then says it's impossible to vary prices without varying. Uh, the 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 uh, when you vary prices, you must vary the distribution of income, which must also vary the the quantities bought, and therefore you cannot aggregate multiple consumers into a single set of indifference curves. Uh, the only said the only way you can do it is the following impossibility theorem. The common sense. This is a quote. The common sense of this impossibility theorem is easy to grasp. Allocating the same totals differently among people must generally change the resulting equilibrium price ratio. The only exception is where tastes are identical, not only for all men, but also for all men when they are rich or poor. Mm. Okay, and that just blows it. So you'd think if you had if this was a rational. Um, you know, a, a rational uh, discipline, and they push the word rational all the damn time. Holy hell, we have to abandon a theory which doesn't take into account class differences between people. Uh, because as Alan Kerman points out, once you have classes, it's totally unreasonable to aggregate my tastes with Elon Musk's. Yeah, or, I haven't said Elon Musk doesn't yeah. shop at little. I'm fairly certain of that. So there's, a, yeah. there's, there's another factor as well in all of this, which is uh, which which might... Uh, sort of argue towards equilibrium is when you start getting the trading community into into all of this because arbitrage yeah you buy you buy up there's a bit of a glut so you buy something uh when you know uh, when you think it's over time it's going to be better value so you can sell it back on the market you know we do that that leads to the feedback effects we've spoken about earlier though it's not going to give you equilibrium um, so, but, so the, but you, the reason you'll be doing that is the, is the hope that you'll bring back the you know right. you're like you'll boost up yeah. the price or bring it back down depending on whether you're buying or selling. And that's part of Sean Pater's logic. And so it is something which we but it could be a microeconomics based on a realistic analysis of how people um, decide what to buy, the distribution of income between people, uh, companies trying to exploit uh, areas where there are weaknesses in their competitors' products and so on and so forth. That's a useful, worthwhile microeconomics. Instead, we get this neoclassical bullshit. Shit. And to give an idea of how bad that bullshit is, I want to keep on quoting these guys to, to, to realize just how bad this work is. Samuelson started with that impossibility theorem I mentioned a while ago. And he said, therefore, you cannot aggregate individuals. He said, ah, but you can aggregate a family. 
Since blood is thicker than water. Mm, God, help me. We were talking about this earlier, weren't we? Since blood is thicker than water (laughs) off air, the preferences of different members are interrelated by what we call the consensus or social welfare function, which takes into account the deservingness or ethical worth of the consumption levels of each of the members. The family acts, and this is in italics, as if it were maximising their joint welfare function. So what he's done is say, well, we can't aggregate individuals, but we can aggregate families. And and then and they say, what we do, we imagine families sit together, you know, all families are happy families. We know this from Dostoevsky. Uh, all families are happy families. So we um, they get together and they and they allocate the income so that everybody's utility uh, is is valued equally within the family. And now this this is the next part where you just go, oh, this is off with the fairies. So having said that, he says, if within the family there can be assumed to take place an optimal reallocation of income so as to keep each member's dollar expenditure of equal ethical worth, then there can be derived for the whole family a set of well-behaved indifference contours relating the totals of what it consumes. The family can be said to act, again in vertical, act as if it maximises such a group preference function. Now, here we go. This is the absolute punchline. The same argument will apply to all of society if optimal reallocations of income can be assumed to keep the ethical worth of each person's marginal dollar equal. Right. So not only am I giving money to my brothers, I'm also... Voluntarily. Voluntarily, but I'm also giving it to, to, to the rest of the country. That's right. We have a benevolent dictator running capitalism. And <laughs> holy hell, can you guys see what you're smoking here? So why, uh, why the- when we do have equilibrium then, so when we have goods uh, that like, uh, like like the Big Mac index is a fairly good example, isn't it? That, you know, come, come hell or high water, Big Macs don't really change in price too much. They're, they're as close as uh, the economy gets to general equilibrium. Why, that's, why- that's talking the cost of production. Mm. Okay, not the demand. Right. So it's a it's a useful index for talking about you know uh, relative uh, income uh, you know, income levels between societies. How many hours work does it take to get a Big Mac? Um, that the cost of production of the Big Macs uh, in in the actual products that are going into it uh, don't vary a great deal uh, between from one country to another. I mean, the, you know, it, it's, it's by it's, wages more than anything. In fact. Yeah. Largely wages, which allows you <laughs> even almost as bad as the as, as the burgers. Mm. Um, actually, probably worse. Um, so yeah, that, that sort of thing's a different thing again. But the the point is, these guys are willing to assume absolute claptrap nonsense to hang on to their theory, and. And, and that's what I find so re- remarkable about this, that it's exactly the same thing I criticise Marxists for in believing the labour theory of value. They're willing to gloss over a huge part of logic that brings that down to the ground. So do the neoclassicals. And then they go along and tell their students that everything is hunky-dory. So this is the 2010 uh, Samuelson textbook, co-authored by, or after Samuelson's death, solely authored by, one William Nordhaus. You know how much respect oh, yeah. I have for him. Yeah. One of your okay. Our discussion of demand is so far returned to the, inverted commas, demand curve. But whose demand is it? Mine? Yours? Everybody's? The fundamental building block for demand is individual preferences. However, in this chapter, we will always focus on market demand, which represents the sum total of all individual demands. The market demand is what we observe, what is observable in the real world. And here's an italics. The market demand curve is found by adding together the quantities demanded by all individuals at each price, again in italics. And here's the punchline. Does the market demand curve obey the law of downward sloping demand? It certainly does. It certainly does if there's a benevolent dictator sitting at the top of society <laughs> reallocating everybody's equally happy. I mean, give me a break. So, Sonnenschein, so, Mantel, De Bruyne, their, their theory then was that it was basically that feedback loop we discussed about 
how the uh, your income is derived from basically the production mm. of of what it is you're buying. It was they basically their theory was, well, you can't have this equilibrium because we, we, we've got this feedback loop that uh, uh, traditional economists have ignored. Is that what we're saying? And then fundamentally, is what it should have been the conclusion. But instead, what they've said is, well, let's let's assume that all individuals have the same tastes and all all goods are the same, right. and then let's derive relative prices out of that. So then we- it, it is just a, it's an intellectual betrayal, and. And Sonnenschein and Schaefer and, uh, were, were more honest about this. In fact, Sonnenschein, who was a leading mathematical economist, went into the, into the university bureaucracy afterwards and pretty much stopped contributing. I think that was a, a fairly strong statement of him of, you know, the whole foundations I've used just don't work, so he drifted sideways. Uh, so they, they stated it more honestly, but it's still in a very obfuscatory way. So uh, the major papers on this is in a, 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 a handbook of mathematical economics, and, and they, they make a, a very strong statement here, but it's still vague. I can understand students reading it not, not meaning what it meant. The importance of the above results is clear. Strong restrictions needed in order to justify the hypothesis of a, that a market demand function has the characteristics of a consumer demand function. Only in special cases can the economy be expected to act as a inverted commas, idealised consumer. The utility hypothesis tells us nothing about market demand unless it is augmented by additional requirements. In other words, guys, we cannot derive a market demand curve from individual demand curve. If we did, and this is what they did with their mathematical theorem, the demand curve could have any shape that could be derived by a polynomial, A plus BX plus CX squared plus etc. And, and that basically means any continuous function uh, that, uh, rather than being a downward sloping line, it can be any continuous function that doesn't double over on itself and doesn't intersect itself. Right. Any any function that does that so, can be a demand curve. Right. So, you, so, you, so, you, so it's you, useless, yeah. in other words. I it's mean, useless. It's yeah. useless. So yeah. is the, is, would I be right in saying that, that you know, that the, it seems like that almost the entire economics profession uh, has uh, spent a lot of uh, energy developing deeply mathematical models uh, using, you know, with, with advanced mathematics, with people with big brains who are developing isolated uh, cases that just don't map to anything else, and therefore you, yeah. all you're getting is a, a tiny slice of, of you know of, of what could be, but is completely destroyed by the real world. Yeah, it's it's useless. It's 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 a it's a, it's a fantasy, right. and they're willing. Thing is, it just shows how much economics is driven by belief. It's academic self-flagellation, isn't it? Really, it's fundamentally, it's, yeah. Mm. Well, they 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 don't want to show it to the kids. I mean, you do this behind closed <laughs> doors. Okay, so uh, you know, uh, but but the, the, this is if you read the literature, you see that there is no foundation at all for the idea of a downward sloping demand curve mm. in the market level. Uh, the only way you can get that is by assuming that all, not only all. Uh, consumers have the same tastes, but all products have the same characteristics. Mm. So you get exactly the same satisfactions out of a coconut that you get out of a banana, which means we're all eating spam. So this is this is the spam theory of economics. And the, and if, if if there was intellectual honesty in neoclassical economics, when it was discovered, we would have abandoned the neoclassical uh paradigm. But instead they still continue pumping the same old stuff. And because they internally don't read this or don't comprehend it properly, um, they don't realise that they're, you know, strong pronouncements about how the economy functions are are, are invalid right from the very foundations. Mm. All right, look, we'll leave it there. Uh, Next time, uh, a a different theme, less uh, driven by mathematical models, I'm pleased to say. Uh, Just the, the simple question, what's wrong with the rentiers, the rentier class? Who are they? And what are they doing to the economy? So we'll look at that next week. Good to talk, Steve. Okay, good. 
For example, uh, for our UK listeners next week, Rishi Sunak's wife, is she part of the Rontiers? And if so, does it really matter? Is it just jealousy of the rich? Or is that a valid economic reason why we should be concerned when the daughter of a billionaire has a stack of money uh, which she can spend with very little effort? Uh, We'll look at that next week on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Thanks for listening. 